0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. I have a fantastic episode for you. My guest is climate activist, investor, and former Democratic presidential candidate Tom Steyer. Tom comes on to talk about climate change coronavirus, running for president, and the importance of voting to achieve true climate success. It's an amazing conversation, and I hope you feel as inspired by it as I did. Okay, first off, we are living through some sobering and historic times. As a semi-regular podcast, it's not really designed to be a breaking news source of information. That's just the reality of the medium and the publishing schedule, but I'd be remiss not to acknowledge the last couple of weeks. Most of us were horrified by seeing what happened to George Floyd, which led to his death at the hands of a police officer. And stemming from that, the massive international protests that followed. It's truly been amazing to see the response to this awful assault and seeing it galvanize so many people to speak up and make their voices heard through Black Lives Matter. As a climate podcast, it's not as obvious as it probably should be where it fits in in all this, but that's not an excuse not to acknowledge what's going on here. I want to do my part, however minor, to elevate diverse and minority voices. It's been a goal of mine to bring more minority voices onto the podcast and share their stories. I feel the podcast has made some progress on that front, but there's a lot more I could be doing. The adaptation space, much like the environmental movement, is overwhelmingly white. But that's really not an excuse. There are still plenty of leaders who are people of color that I could be talking to who are instructive voices in the climate movement. I'd like to interview more of these voices. I'd also like to encourage you to contact me. Let me know about these diverse voices that I'm missing that I could potentially talk to, be it citizen activists, academics, or other adaptation experts. Send me an email and let me know they are out there so I can follow up and learn more. Although I recorded my conversation with Tom Steyer before these protests, Tom speaks out about climate justice and what it means for racial justice, so hopefully very relevant to what's going on around us. Every little voice of support helps. I hope you find yours. And the podcast hasn't completely missed the mark on these topics. I encourage you to check out my episode where I went to New Orleans and interviewed multiple adaptation advocates who are also people of color. And also check out my interview with public health expert, Dr. Natasha DeJarnett. Tasha has become a leading African-American voice on public health and climate change issues. And more recently, I interviewed Dr. Linda Shai at Cornell University, who focuses on urban planning and environmental equity. Go take a look in the archive for those episodes. Okay, on that note, these are wild and scary times. I want to tell you about a podcast that might help you navigate all this craziness. It's called No Place Like Home. Hosts Mary Ann and Anna Jane tackle the climate crisis with heart, depth, vulnerability, and grace. Listening to them feels like sitting with two best friends on a big breezy porch. This season called Bring in the Light They're exploring how spirituality helps us find courage and strength to fight climate change. They chat with a Buddhist climate scientist, an evangelical pastor from Puerto Rico, a witch, an indigenous spiritual teacher, a Muslim activist, a rabbi, and more. No Place Like Home gives us tangible advice on how to fight the crisis, but most importantly, it helps us deal with it on an emotional, psychological, and spiritual level. Be sure to check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And I'd like to just say, and as you probably hear these on other podcasts that you listen to, we swap promotions. And so they promoted my podcast on their podcast. And so they give me content to read to kind of give you information. And so I'm just adding this. They actually have an amazing podcast, I think, very relevant for the Times. They do a great job. So I think what's happening with Black Lives Matter, No Place Like Home, is a great resource in that respect. So I want to do an additional plug. We do this cross-promotions but I just want to add that. So go check them out. Okay. And at the end of my conversation with Tom Steyer, stick around for a very short interview with Mike digiorno Marlowe, the co-host of the Bay podcast, which focuses on important environmental issues. All right, let's jump in with climate activist, Tom Steyer. Hey, adapters. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I'm talking with climate activist, investor, and former presidential candidate, Tom Steyer. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Doug, it's great to be with you all. Well, this is a real treat to have you on the podcast. But first off, just have to acknowledge kind of what's going on. What are you doing right now? How are you socially distancing?
1: I'm at home and I am going out on a daily basis to run. I've been doing different activities, but I try and get a workout every single day. So when I run, I wear a mask and I try to never get within six feet. And if I do, I try to be very careful. So I'm very serious about the mask part. I'm very serious about the distancing part. And, you know, I do all the things that I think are normal hygiene about washing hands and trying to make sure that surfaces are clean. I view this as kind of a societal discipline question that if we all do the right things, then we can uh, prevent the spread of this virus.
0: This must be such a change from when you ran for president. You're shaking hands. You're just surrounded by people. This must be a shocking change for you.
1: You know, Doug, it's not just shaking hands. I'm a huge hugger.
0: Oh, okay.
1: A gigantic hugger. And, you know, it's such an emotional experience to talk to people about what's going on in their life and the meaning of America and what we're trying to accomplish together. I must have had tens of thousands of people, right. honestly.
0: You're in the Bay Area, right? You're in San Francisco area? Yes. I'm in San Francisco proper. Well, San Francisco, is, it's my understanding, was one of the first cities to shut down. But in, in general, how's California doing? I mean, I follow the news, but what's your sense of things?
1: Well, I think on a health basis, we're doing relatively well. I think California shut down really early. Governor Newsom was very decisive about taking action to protect health. We're still sheltering in place. We're the beginning of what's called here, phase two reopening, which is limited reopening of non-essential businesses starts on Friday the 8th. And I don't know if you know this, Doug, but I am the co-chair of the business and jobs recovery for California. It's a task force to advise the governor. So I have spent a lot of time in the last couple, three weeks, looking at what it's going to take to open California as fast as is safely possible and to do it in a way that we promote a more just green and forward-looking state.
0: I recently had a conversation with Dan Kamen from Berkeley. I don't know if you crossed paths with him, but he wrote a letter, a green stimulus bill at the start of all this. I don't know if he's, is he informing your panel at all?
1: You know, he's not on the task force, but I've known Dan for a long time. He's a fantastic guy. I do talk to him and I take what he says incredibly seriously. He's really a good person and incredibly knowledgeable and thoughtful.
0: Well, yeah, and it just seems like a rare opportunity, especially with California of all states, that as you kind of recover from this economically, that you you do bring in environmental concerns. So I, I, I hope that's something you're able to do. I
1: mean, it's absolutely part of the mission statement of our task force. And I was actually on the phone yesterday as the co-chair of this task force, talking to environmental justice groups to make sure that their voices are heard. I think everybody knows that COVID is disproportionately impacting black and brown communities and low-income communities. And those are the exact same places where there's the most environmental injustice. So this COVID pandemic is revealing what we in the climate environmental justice world have known for a long time, which is the impacts of these environmental problems are very disproportionately felt. And they're specifically focused on those communities. And if you want to come back and redress the problems, you can't do it without starting with that awareness of the disproportionate racial and income impacts.
0: And I'm not sure if on the panel you're having these discussions yet. you're thinking about environmental concerns, but on the flip side of carbon mitigation, there's adapting to climate change. And again, it disproportionately impacts low-income people. Is that something you're thinking of doing too, as responding to climate change that you can kind of cover two bases there?
1: Absolutely. Look, I've been working politically in climate for over a decade, and my feeling about politics and policy is that you have to start with environmental justice and redressing the injustices that have existed in our society. And that if you have leadership from those communities from the get go, that you will, in fact, get the right policy and you will get the right politics. And so what we're doing in this task force explicitly is going to put under resourced communities in front. And we're going to be very aware about, as I said, a more just California, a more green california and a forward-looking california for
0: sure i know you've probably told this story a lot but i want you to share i guess just with my listeners you are a climate activist and you are also you you got your start and you're a wealthy investor but you decided to dedicate yourself to climate change when did that moment happen
1: i mean it was kind of rolling thunder doug but i will say this it really started sitting around our dining room table And talking to our kids, our kids are now 32, 30, 28, and 26. And this is probably somewhere around 14, 15 years ago. And talking about, okay, what are the issues in our society that in a 100 years, people are going to look back at us and say, what was wrong with these people? Why were they not on it? How could they have made this gigantic moral and intellectual blunder? And we were just talking about, well, what is it? You know, we're talking about the different things that people would say about us 100 years from now. And and it started to focus more and more on climate. And so I started to try and figure out from those conversations, I think of our society of America as being a society that's practical and realistic. And when we have problems, we face them. And there may be big political screaming and yelling, but we basically compromise and solve the problems and move on. That's our history. And so my question was, why are we this is an obvious thing? I mean, at that point, my kids were somewhere, you know, in their early to late teens, early to mid teens. They can figure it out. So clearly the people in Washington, D.C. can figure it out. So why are we not solving it? Because this is the kind of thing that traditionally Americans have confronted and dealt with. And that was really the start of my trying to figure out why isn't it being solved? What can I do to participate on the side of the angels here? And how do I push it along and I got more and more wrapped up in trying to figure that out and trying different things to see what would push our society to deal with this in a sensible way, in a way that protects the health and safety of Americans and our livelihoods. And, you know, to try and figure out first to figure out how to solve it, you have to figure out why it's not getting solved. So, you know, I tried a bunch of different things.
0: One of the outcomes of this decision to vote yourself to climate change is you're the the founder of Next Gen America. Are you still involved with that group? Oh, gosh, yes.
1: Next Gen America started as something called Next Gen Climate, which was to organize people politically to act, to organize and vote around climate and then around broader progressive values of justice. And just as an example, in 2018, Doug, Next Gen did the largest youth voter mobilization in American history. You know, we are the biggest organizer of voters of people under 35 in the country. And and that's been true. And it continues to be true. We work with our partners in labor and together have knocked on over 25 million doors in the last two cycles, 2016 and 2018. And that continues. But the biggest thing is this youth where we chose to be in 38 swing congressional districts in 2018, more than doubled the turnout of young people. And 33 of those 38 flipped to Democrats. So we're very next gen America is a continuing attempt to make sure that the biggest generation in American history and the most diverse generation in American history participates in politics the way other American citizens do so their voices can be heard. And, you know, that's something that if you believe in democracy, which I do, and you believe in broad representational democracy, next gen America has been all about trying to include the voices of People who who are not participating at the same level, either because they don't think it matters or because they're being excluded. And we've worked on that for years.
0: Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize if you want to support environmental concerns, it's get people to vote. It's ultimately just helping with elections. They don't realize it's that connected.
1: (laughs) You know, it really is. It's as I said, I've tried a bunch of different things. I I basically spent money on technological research to try and make sure that clean solutions could happen faster. I spent money on economic research in a totally bipartisan fashion to show that a clean America grows faster, is healthier, pays people better and has more jobs. It turned out that what really matters is voting, that what we really need to do is have broader turnout in America so that more people's voices are heard, so that it's more representative of the population as a whole. And that when that happens, we make better choices on climate and a lot of other things, too.
0: I know your presidential run was much more than this, but for us in the climate space, we looked on with fascination. And In some ways, it was this huge climate experiment. You're out there meeting people. You're creating political ads, a lot of them around climate change. Were there any concrete lessons that you learned in this process that could benefit climate messaging? Did you come away saying, you know what? I didn't understand that before, but now I do.
1: Well, you know, Doug, it's funny. I started my first climate campaign at the beginning of 2010. So over 10 years ago in California, in a proposition fight with two oil companies. And we said then the only way to talk about climate is to talk about things that are immediate jobs and health that you have to start with the communities that care the most about it, which is its surprising to many Americans, but the People who care the most about environmentalism, climate, clean air, sustainability are Latinos. The the number two group is African-Americans and the number three group is Asian-Americans. So in thinking politically about environmentalism, sustainability and climate, the lessons that I learned over 10 years ago are talk to people about the things that matter to them, like asthma and jobs. Talk to the communities who already agree with you and make sure they know where you stand. And what has changed over the last 10 years is really the youth voice, that people under the age of 35, this is a number one or number two issue. I think, you know, I have four kids under 35. They all know that if the earth, if the physical earth fails, if we're not sustainable, that that's going to dramatically and negatively impact their life in every single way. And so I think that that's a new awareness. It's somewhat generational and I can tell you that traveling the country, that was something where I saw that up close. But to me, all this stuff comes back to caring about human beings and being justice oriented. If you do that, then you have something to say to people in Iowa where there's flooding. You have something to say to people in Florida where people are worried about sea rise. You have something to say because it matters to everybody's life. And, and it's, a, it's in the context of justice And the things that people care about day to day and it becomes a voting
0: issue becomes a little bit of an echo chamber. And I'm sure you encounter that California or the East Coast. And so when you're out there shaking hands and hugging people, blue collar voters, what were some of the things that they brought up in context of climate change? Because you were talking about it a lot on the stump. What were you hearing from these type of voters?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's a local issue. You know, the old political slogan, think globally, act locally it shows itself so differently in Tucson, Arizona than it does in Miami, Florida. But it impacts people's life in both cases. The thing that is interesting to me that's happened subsequently, Doug, is there's been this huge oil price bust, right? That basically international oil markets have moved to a place where virtually no American oil production is profitable. You know, the combination of a supply war driven by the Saudis, really an attack on the American oil industry and the reduced demand due to the COVID-19 pandemic have really changed the economic framework for thinking about energy in the United States. And depending on how this goes, can change it going forward in
0: really profound and dramatic ways. Were you happy with the media coverage in, in the Democratic primary around climate change? No, of course not. Okay. I mean,
1: Look, I found running for president enormously educational, positive, and fulfilling. Meeting Americans on the ground is the best thing I can imagine. It's just fantastic. I'm not teasing. When I said I'm a hugger, it's not me faking it. I just loved it. I just loved them. It was just a fantastic experience. The national press and the sort of pundit class, in my opinion, covered the campaign in a very rote and backward looking fashion. I don't think they were willing to think about climate as a critical issue. They definitely weren't willing to think about climate or pandemics as important parts of foreign policy. They were very much driven by the frameworks from the past. And those were the questions that they wanted to cover to the exclusion of climate being, a, for instance, an international relations issue. since it, Whereas, in fact, it's obviously a global problem. It's totally dependent on countries cooperating and getting along. But if you were to every foreign policy, ish, you know, conversation had to do with Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq. Some of them were about trade, China and Russia, but they were very much rooted in the past. And to the exclusion of thinking about the actual issues that we can now see are dominating the future. Uh, Yeah, I definitely felt as if there is a institutional political way of thinking about the United States, and it's very hard to break out of that.
0: And I guess being an outsider, you were in the thick of it. it. just, you know, there were some climate change forms that occurred and that was much different than 2016. So I guess we were encouraged by that. But I, I see what you mean. It just needs to be integrated to almost everything that the media covers. Yes.
1: Well, you know, the other thing that I think is really critical about it, Doug, is this. There was a consistent practice by people in the press to compare people's climate plans. And that's how they thought about people in terms of climate. And that's somewhat interesting in how you th- it does show at some level how you think about climate. But there was no attempt to look at what I think is the most important way to think about climate, which is where is it in your priorities because if you're talking about a gigantic climate agenda and it's your fifth priority, you're not getting to that agenda Def- by definition you are saying, here's my climate plan, but it's going to be you know a thick stack of papers that I'm going to put on the shelf and bring out the next time I have to run for office, because you're not getting to five huge agendas. And there was no attempt by the press to understand how climate fit into somebody's prioritization and worldview. And that meant that on a realistic basis, they weren't really doing their job of figuring out what do these people actually stand for? Because anybody can hire somebody to write a climate plan and wave it around and say it's a great plan. But the question is, what are you going to do about it? Like the plan doesn't matter. What matters is what you do about it, because you have to know nobody's plan is going to happen because it's all going to be changed by events, changed by compromises, changed by politics. And that's just the nature of the beast. So the real question is, how much do you care? And conceptually, how are you thinking about this?
0: Yeah, we would see these articles, maybe something like Vox would compare the climate plans of all the candidates. And a lot of us out there were just kind of rolling our eyes that you want to hear some detail, but it all is in opposition to the current administration's climate policies. And so they were all relatively good compared to that. So it was just we're living kind of in a different world to be able to have that nuanced assessment of things. And and I guess on that note, what do you think? Joe Biden is now the nominee. What's your sense of his climate change as a priority for him?
1: Well, look, I think people don't realize how high a priority it is, actually, for Vice President Biden. I think he said in places. It's his number one priority. I think he has surprised me versus what I've read when I've talked to him about how much he knows and how serious he is. And I think that it's going to be important for people in the climate community, however you want to define that, to make sure that we support him and push him. And I think it's going to be incumbent on him and his campaign to reach out to people in the climate community broadly, both to hear what they have to say to make sure that his policies reflect the best thinking and also to connect emotionally, because obviously he's a very personality driven person, emotionally driven person by other human beings. So, you know, I'm expecting his policies to be very good. And I think they're going to change and develop and become better as he listens to people. But I think in addition, it's going to be really important for people in the climate community to push for what we need, what we know we need. And at the same time, to make sure that we're pushing as hard as possible for him, because we were saying, compared to Mr. Trump, anybody's climate policies are good. Well, it's true, but having them be better than Mr. Trump's can't be the standard. So at the same time, we need to push for them to be as progressive as possible and push for people to get out and vote, because as you said, that's the most important thing we can do to try and end up with a safe and healthy
0: world let's say joe biden wins the election <laughs> let's hope this and what would you advise joe biden let me, let me explain here I, I used to work for the federal government worked for the national park service in dc and you know when president obama was really bringing a lot of the climate policies in a lot of executive orders and to be quite honest you know they're toothless in to some degree and you know trump has come along and just thrown all those out what would you do let's say you were president what concrete actions could we really take on the climate change issues to really start making some big changes? Because, I mean, you have to go through Congress for a lot of it, but you don't necessarily have to go all the time. What would you do?
1: Well, I think there's a couple questions that you have to answer before you can really answer your question. And that is, what is the composition of the Senate? Yeah. What is the composition of the House? And so I said when I was running for president that I would declare a state of emergency on climate on day one. And I would do that for a couple of reasons. One is, to access the emergency powers of the presidency, to get going on things like rules, about which you can do in terms of miles per gallon, building codes, EVs, renewable portfolio standards, but also to signal to the country, we're in a state of emergency here. We have to get this right, and we have to get this right on an urgent basis. But the other thing that does is signals to the rest of the world that we're taking it seriously and we're getting our house in order. Because if the United States doesn't act on an emergency basis and doesn't get our house in order, then how are we going to go to India and China and Brazil and Turkey and Poland and ask them to get their house in order? I mean, how do you lead an international coalition to do something significant if you aren't willing to do it yourself in your own country? So when we think about this, we've got to think about, yes, they're the rules that the executive orders, the president can take. There are the infrastructure building projects that we need to do as a country to build a sustainable economy, and there's leading the world, and we need to do all of them. And the question is not whether we have to do all of them, we definitely have to do all of them. It's just a question of how do you start and how do they fit together? And honestly, this pandemic and the fact that we're in such a tough spot economically with all this unemployment And the dramatic drop in spending is an actual opportunity for the federal government to step up and do a huge rebuilding of America project in a sustainable and green way. Actually, I think there's a whole host of things that we need to do, Doug. And I think but to some extent, they're going to be dependent. How you do it is going to be dependent at some level where you prioritize it. And at some level, what the composition is of the Congress and of the Senate of the United States in terms of what is likely to get passed.
0: Well, I like the idea of a national emergency. You know, in some ways, you don't want to think that Trump's done these things that these are good things. But he's opened the door to a national emergency executive orders around immigration. But here, climate change is an actual issue that merits that sort of ranking. And so I hope Democrats take advantage of at least creating these narratives of how important this is.
1: Yes. The other thing that I think is huge, Doug, as president, almost the biggest thing you can do is set the tone of what matters in the country. Teddy Roosevelt's bully pulpit, talking about the values and what we're trying to do together as a nation and what we stand for. This is a perfect example of where a president has to rally the American people, explain the underlying rationale of where we stand and what we need to do about it and how we can succeed. And I think as president, that's a huge climate issue to explain to the American people that we have this threat, that we have ways of dealing with it, that it is an opportunity for us to create a better future, including better paying jobs and better health, cleaner air and cleaner water, and that we're going to methodically and systematically go out and succeed together. That message is incredibly important in terms of what happens, because it's not just a question of some legislation. It's not just a question of some executive orders. It's a question of Americans understanding what we're trying to do together and how important it is. It might be the most important part of great presidents is re-explaining the world to Americans and explaining to them how we're going to use the current situation to be a better people and create a better future.
0: I want to step back a little bit. And part of a lot of us in the climate space have been following you for years, even before you ran for president and just you're independently wealthy. You're a billionaire focusing on climate change. It's one of those things where like, wow, I wish a billionaire would focus on climate change. And you're doing that. There are a lot of really wealthy people in the United States and just it seems like a handful are focusing on this, you know, Mike Bloomberg, yourself, Bill Gates. Why don't you think more of these people are really stepping it up on some of these really big, important issues? And there's this assumption, maybe you're talking with these people more so than we do, but why do you think that is? There seems like there could be a lot of good done with that way.
1: Well, I think more people are, Doug. I think that more people are focusing on climate Specifically, I think you see people talking about spending gigantic sums of money in public, and I also hear people saying it in private. But let me say this. There are very few people in this country who want to expose themselves to the kind of personal attacks that you get by wading into the public square and getting into politically involved. And I said, you know, to me. You said the biggest thing we can do is vote. And I agreed with you. And we've been working at NextGen America to try and broaden voting and making sure specifically that young people and underrepresented communities show up proportionally with other Americans. But getting involved in that means exposing yourself to a lot of personal attacks. And most people don't want to. They have various reasons. Some of it are just they personally don't want that. Sometimes they worry that they're exposing their business to attacks by politicians of the you know, to the extent they're annoying politicians who have power to make their businesses more difficult. And that's clearly something that happens. But I think that the extreme partisanship and personal vitriol that goes along with American politics today dissuades an awful lot of people from wanting to get visibly involved on issues that have a partisan tinge. And this one does, you know, you and I can sit here and talk about science and we can talk about sustainability and we can talk about species extinction and all the different things we can do from a business and personal and government standpoint to have a more sustainable, safer, healthier future. But those are highly partisan statements to make in this world. Crazy as it seems, just talking about science has become partisan. And I think a lot of rich people and I think a lot of people in general, rich or not rich, feel like getting involved with that is something that's personally too painful or too distasteful to do. And I I think that scares a lot of people off.
0: No matter who wins the election, I, I have a feeling you're going to be out there influencing the climate message, and this is the long game. We're going to be dealing with climate change for, for hundreds of years. Do you ever get involved, and this is really a lot of my focus area and a lot of the guests that I have on, is like, how are we going to adapt to climate change? You know, California wildfire, we have sea level rise. Is that something that it's coming up with you more? Because so much is focused on the carbon side, which we have to deal with, but are you getting more involved on, like, because the message, and the point I'm getting to is, like, even the messaging... I find a lot of people really gravitate toward, well, what are we doing today about this? Are you getting involved with adaptation at all?
1: The funny thing is, Doug, there's no way not to. You know, if you live in California and there are wildfires that are raging, then your fellow citizens are at risk and getting hurt. And so, you know, we've been involved with that for a long time. I said to me, this is all about sort of fellow feeling for Americans and sympathy for people who are vulnerable and hurting. And that's what adaptation really is, is saying, my gosh, your house burnt down. Now, what are we going to do and how are we going to avoid that happening again? That's the absolute responsibility of any society. But I know that this podcast is called America Adapts. So I understand that there's got to be a a, a big emphasis on adaptation. I just think ultimately we're going to have to mitigate as well, that we're going to have the carbon stuff really matters. Because if we go on this way, it's going to overwhelm us. We're not going to be able to adapt. That's my fear. Or we're not going to be able to adapt without massive pain.
0: In that sort of narrative, I think back in the Gore, Inconvenient Truth years, there was, well, if you focus on adaptation, that means you're giving up on the mitigation side. And we in the adaptation space were like, no, get the mitigation side under control. There, We can't adapt to anything but as you can appreciate, the impacts of climate change are here today. And there's just a totally. whole totally what do you
1: say to somebody whose house burnt down? Right. Oh, we can't help you because that would hurt our mitigation strategy? No.
0: Right, right. You know,
1: these are our fellow human beings and citizens. Of course, we've got to be planning how to take care of each other and planning how to try and avoid the worst, you know, outcomes. Of course we've got to do that. But it isn't a strategy that can stand alone, is all I'm saying, Doug. But the idea that you wouldn't do that makes no sense whatsoever.
0: It's kind of a yin and yang thing. We expect the other side to do what they're doing. So, well, yes, glad glad, glad to hear it. Just have a few more questions here. I'm going to just veer off a little bit from the climate issue. And I hear you're a fan of Guster. (laughs) (laughs) This is true.
1: (laughs) Of course it's true. Those guys are great. They're really nice guys. I love their music and they're very climate oriented.
0: And and the reason I bring up this question, I have a friend of a friend. I know like Ryan, I'm not good friends or anything, but the friend of a friend going back to their days at Tufts when they were called Gus, I would hear them on campus. I went up to Tufts on occasion. And so I, my inside question to you was, I hear you hang out with the Guster guys.
1: That is an exaggeration. Okay. (laughs) What is true is this. My wife hangs out with the Guster guys.
0: Oh, okay. All right.
1: So in fact, she is a huge live music fan, and she loves that band. And they're really nice people. They're very socially aware, and so I, I think it would be an exaggeration to say I hang out with them. Okay. I think that's a, they've been over at our house. They're really nice guys, but they're touring a lot, and they have they live on the other side of the country and have their own lives. But they're fantastic. I mean, those are classic thoughtful, creative, caring Americans. You know, when I said I love traveling around the country and meeting people, it's for people like that, who are doing it in their own way, their own creative, individual way, but taking a lot of responsibility and giving back more than they get from society. I, they're just great. Those guys are great. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. All right. And so two more questions for you. What's next for you? What What are you planning over the next six months, next year?
1: The two things that I'm, I, I'm, I guess I'm doing three things right now. One is I'm co-chairing this task force on jobs and business recovery in California. And believe it or not, I was up at 530 this morning reading detailed protocols of how to reopen businesses so that I'm actually working on. That's a lot of work. And I, I cared a lot about it because, as I said, we've got to create a better future out of this pandemic and we've got to put people, get people back to work as fast as safely possible. So there's a lot of work to do there. Secondly, we're doing the voter registration engagement and turnout at Next Gen America. That we've been doing for a long time. And that's something which is of critical importance. You know, we have to make sure, as you said, this is the biggest thing we can do. Honestly, people always say it, but this is an election which will, it could be the biggest election in the history of elections in the world. It could have more impact than any election ever anywhere. No joke. I agree. So I'm totally committed on this election through Next Gen America. And lastly, I'm working on climate stuff. I'm doing this all the time in a variety of ways, but expect that to not just continue, but to get more intense as we go towards November 3rd, which is Election Day, in terms of interacting with environmental justice groups, interacting with mainline environmental groups, trying to do some of the political fundraising around the climate and environmental world, trying to be in contact with the Biden campaign And kind of send information their way about what I think and what I think people in the climate community care the most about. That's something which we're working on every single day and, you know, looking at the different things that need to be done. So between those three things. Between now and Election Day, November 3rd, I'm just hoping that they institute the
0: 28-hour day. (laughs) You're a busy man. Yes. Well, great. Okay. And final question, I asked all my guests this question. If you could recommend one person to come on this podcast, who would it be?
1: Well let me say this Doug, I'm not sure who's been on your podcast.
0: I have like a lot of climate professionals, adaptation experts, but you know I have climate scientists like Catherine Hayhoe and Michael Mann have been on, but a lot of times it's just rank and file like professors dealing with adaptation and so yeah I guess people that you've met in the climate space that would be okay. interesting. I'm
1: going to so I'm going to say there's some famous people out there who you might have had and you might not have had who are great like you know Bill McKibben's great. He's very good at explaining things and You know, a lot of people who are on this podcast have read stuff he's written or have heard him speak. And, you know, the same would be true of like Al Gore and a bunch of people. But I'm going to give you someone who I don't think most people will know. One of my all time favorite people, full stop, but also one of my favorite climate people. I'm going to give you two, actually. Okay. it's a guy from South Carolina named Harold Mitchell who started one of the best environmental justice projects ever, who's worked on it for over 20 years. And it involves communities which are extraordinarily poorly treated. His own family was poisoned, parents died, and he's worked on this. He's Harold's just a in my mind an incredibly effective and wonderful person with a real insight into how communities can take environmental degradation and despair and turn it into something much, much, much better. And he's a wonderful guy. You just love him, Doug. Awesome. Another person who I consider to be a huge environmental leader in the United States that a lot of people don't know is a legislator from California, from Coachella Valley, which is, his district is so poor that it qualifies for Doctors Without Borders. Wow. And his name's Eduardo Garcia. He's a legislator, and he is totally first generation to go to college, just a And an absolute leader on climate, but an absolute leader on environmental justice. Very, very knowledgeable with a very different perspective. But I think a deeply thoughtful and very brilliant guide dog. I got more people like that where they're really dealing with stuff. that's so close to the bone, you can't believe it. And at the same time, they have a big perspective in terms of how that fits into a global issue.
0: All right, Tom, this has been a true honor. This has been a great conversation for me, and I, I appreciate what you've done and what you're going to continue to do. But thanks again for coming on the podcast.
1: Doug, it is such a treat to be on this podcast. I'm not kidding you. The chance for us to push something better, for to discuss the ability to make America and the world better is such a privilege, in my opinion, and such a pleasure. It really is fun to talk to you.
0: Okay, folks, thanks to Tom Steyer for coming on the podcast. What a treat to talk to him. Before we wrap this up, I want to share a short interview with Mike Dejamarlo, the co-host of the Manga Bay podcast, where he focuses on important environmental issues. Hey, Adapters, we're back. I'm with Mike Dejamarlo with the Manga Bay Explorers podcast. Hey, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug, it's great to be here. All right, I'm going to just be upfront and truthful. We actually practice your last name multiple times, and so just say it once, so uh, everyone knows that what the really the correct pronunciation is.
2: Sure, it's no problem. It's pronounced <laughs> It's Terrible! You
0: guys missed out on me saying it five different times, but here we are, and I we're here. I want to talk about this podcast that you're doing, but. I've mentioned it before and I've thanked you before. You have helped me with production of my podcast and I just want to use this chance again to thank you. You've done some editing on the audio and it's been extremely valuable. So thank you so much for doing that.
2: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I really enjoy the work you do and it just means a lot that I'm able to help contribute to it.
0: It's fantastic work. Okay, let's talk about your podcast. First off, what is it? What's the Explorers podcast about?
2: So Manga Bay Explorers is kind of like an exploratory narrative journalistic podcast. It takes a topic or an issue in environmental news, and it explores it in depth through a series of about five to six episodes. And so currently we're exploring a potential salamander pandemic. And the specific pandemic is a fungal pathogen called Bsal. And if it gets to the United States, it could have some devastating repercussions. That's the inaugural series of Mongabay Explorers. And currently, the first two episodes have been released.
0: Okay, so who was your first guest on that first episode when you were talking about b We'll call it b as just for short.
2: My first guest was Dr. Karen Lips. She is one of the foremost fungal disease experts for amphibians in the world. And she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times in 2014, kind of urging our country to take action on this. And so I thought that that would be a great guest to have for our first episode, and she was fantastic.
0: Actually, I collaborated with Karen a while ago when I worked at the Society for Conservation Biology on a letter around B-sal. She was the sort of main author, but we used SCB as the vehicle. So familiar with her work, and she has been on this forever. So you got the right person to talk about it. And so explain in relation to climate change what we need to kind of worry about too.
2: So salamanders are really, really important for the health of our forests, but they also help to mitigate carbon emissions, believe it or not, about 179 pounds of carbon per acre of forest. And the way that they do this is they eat insects that break down forest foliage that normally would get absorbed back into the earth. But when these these little insects, when they eat this forest leaves and foliage and whatnot, a lot of that carbon gets released back into the atmosphere. And so salamanders eat those insects, thereby helping the carbon stay in the ground.
0: All right. I love salamanders. I love that you covered it here. But let's talk about the future of the podcast. What's up next? What are you doing now with it?
2: We're still in the middle of that series. Um, We're going to be releasing episode three in in about a week from now. That one, I I talked to someone with the United States Geological Survey about testing for B-cell. And we're hoping that this podcast series gains a good amount of traction and we can keep exploring various topics and issues. Okay, this is exciting. I'm I'm glad you're
0: working on this podcast and of course, what do you advise people if they want to subscribe to it? Just typical podcast apps, Apple, just uh, you have a website dedicated to this.
2: Yeah, so we release Mongabay Explorers bi-weekly along with the Mongabay Newscast, which is a separate podcast itself, and we publish it through the same feed. So if you want to listen to Mongabay Explorers, you subscribe to the Mongabay Newscast. You can do that through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify, or pretty much most major platforms. Or you can just go directly to Mongabay.com itself where you can stream it. And how do you spell that? Mongabay is spelled M-O-N-G-A-B-A-Y dot com. All right, Mike, again, appreciate all the work
0: that you're doing for America Doubts, but I'm very excited that you're working on this podcast and we'll have obviously links in the show notes and such. I wish you well with what you're doing here and, and thanks for coming on the pod.
2: Thank you so much, Doug. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Tom Steyer for coming on the podcast and talking about his climate work and his presidential run. What a treat to talk with him, a leading voice in the climate movement. Hopefully we'll see a role for him in a Biden administration. And thanks for Mike for coming on and talking about the Bay podcast. Salamanders rule. Okay, here's my episode shout-out. I want to reach out and thank those people who've gone on social media and plug America Dapps. And, and not just that, but also just reaching out to me and letting me know that they listen to the podcast. So thanks to Elise Treglecon, which I'm brutalizing that last name, and Hardy Almas, Thanks for being listeners and Hardy. I hope you don't mind me sharing your story, but Hardy has been a long time listener and he reached out to me, asking me some advice on how to get more involved in the adaptation space. And he said the podcast was partially responsible for him getting out of an oil and gas industry job and going back to graduate school to get into adaptation. Wow. That is incredibly humbling. Also want to thank Adam Spencer for inviting me to listen in on his master's defense. Adam was one of my original guests on the podcast and it's been awesome staying in touch with him over the years. Also, thanks to Paul Wagner and Jennifer Hoffman for inviting me to participate in an online adaptation panel for a graduate course they are leading. That was fun. Thanks again. Okay, I want to mention the work I'm doing with Simpatico Studios. I'm hosting live talk shows on the Climate Adaptation Channel on Simpatico TV. Right now, we're recording pilots, and I've recently passed my 50th pilot episode. I've been talking with some amazing climate professionals from around the world, literally from around the world, Asia, Australia, Africa, Europe, North America, if you're in a professional in this place, maybe we can have a conversation about the important work you're doing. It's actually a relatively simple process to participate. And videos from all the episodes are professionally produced, and you can use them on your own me- website and social channels. If you're looking for opportunities for remote working, Simpatico is definitely something you should look into. And we're also encouraging you just to come check things out. Come watch a live show and join the community room. The software is behind a firewall, so reach out to me or go to simpatico.com, and that's dot ocom and put your information in, and we'll get directions for you on how you can get into a show. And yes, it's free. We just want to let you check things out and see what Simpatico is all about. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work, think about using a podcast. I've worked with many partners before, World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, MIT, UCLA, the trustees. Maybe you want to tell your story via podcast. Reach out, let's partner. Also, I do presentations to classes and keynote presentations at conferences. I know we're all taking a break from those at the moment, but feel free to contact me if you're interested in having me speak at your event. Some final housekeeping, don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Adapts and ask to join. I'll prove it right away. A chance to hear insider info about the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for the guests, let me know. Listen, people who write me tell me their own experiences listening to the podcast. I plug them here on the podcast. So please do it. I love hearing your stories. It is a highlight of my week. I'm at AmericaAdaps at gmail.com. Get your phone out right now. Send me an email. Okay, check out the website at americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.